There was an old man who was married to an equally old woman, and uh, the old man was convinced that his wife was going deaf. He'd been telling her for months that she needed to go to a doctor and get her hearing checked, but she wouldn't do it. She just refused. And so finally he decided, you know, if she's not going to go on her own, I'm going to just set up an appointment for her. So he called the doctor, made an appointment, uh, but it was two weeks out. And the doctor said, well, you know, if you want just a general idea of how good our hearing is, here's a simple at-home test you can do all by yourself. He said, start about 40 feet away when she's not looking, looking in the other direction, and just say something to her, speak in a normal voice. If she can hear you in a normal voice from 40 feet away, there's a real good sense that her hearing is perfectly normal. But if she can't, then move 10 feet closer to 30 feet. Try it again. If that doesn't work, move 20 and 10 and so on until she can hear you, and that'll tell you how good her hearing really is. So a short while later, the man was uh, sitting in the living room, and his wife was in the kitchen cooking supper, and he thought, hey, I'm about 40 feet away. I think I'm going to give this test a little try. And so he said in a normal voice, honey, what's for supper? No response. So he gets up out of his chair, he moves 10 feet closer, and he says the second time, honey, what's for supper? Again, no response whatsoever. He goes into 20 feet and then 10 feet and still no response. And he's thinking to himself, wow, this is is much worse than I could imagine. So he finally comes right up behind her and he says, honey, what's for supper? She turns around and she says, for the fifth time I said chicken. And would you please quit shouting? Now, we're not going to talk this morning about are you able to hear, but who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Um, We've been uh, working through the book of Esther. We're now in the fourth week of our study of that book. And uh, one of the most interesting observations when you read through the story as a whole and if you weren't here when we introduced it and told the whole story, for, you, know, you definitely want to go back and just read through the whole book to get the flow of the whole story. But when you do that, one of the most interesting insights or observations is just the way the, the voices of other people influence the main characters of the story. Uh, let's, start with, uh, let's start with King Xerxes. You'll remember that King Xerxes uh, wanted to Uh, put on a grand display of his glory, and so he called for six months of celebration. Uh, He he pulled out all the stops. He called all the nobles, all the officials, all the military leaders to come to the capital city of Susa. For six months, he showed off his glory uh, to all these people. And to cap it all off, he he announced a a one-week celebration, a seven-day party, with an open bar, with an endless supply of alcohol, and the king's permission that everyone could drink as much as they wanted to drink. Well, we're told that at the end of that seven days, King Xerxes, uh, in fact, uh, Esther 1.10 has to explain to us here, I don't think we need the explanation, but it says that by this time the king was in high spirits. He is in high spirits, and and it's in that state that he comes up with the brilliant idea to call on his beautiful wife, his dearly loved wife, to come and entertain a gathering of the bawdiest gathering of drunken men probably in history. Uh, You know, 
it's not surprising that Queen Vashti, who's unlike Xerxes, is in her right mind, decides this is not a good idea. And so she refuses him, much to his embarrassment. So King Xerxes is embarrassed. He calls together his wise men, who undoubtedly had also been drinking for seven days straight. Probably one of the greatest examples of pooled ignorance in all of history. Uh, They bring them all together, and in that high state, he says, what do you think we ought to do about this? And they said, well, you know, there's only one thing you can do. The only thing you can do is to denounce her, to strip her of her title, to send her away, and decree that she can never come into your presence ever again. They said, you know, such drastic action is is necessary because if you don't do this, the entire empire is probably going to crumble by the end of the week because every woman in the empire is going to start defying their husbands. So Xerxes heard what they said, agreed that it was the best thing to do, and uh, sent out the decree. Vashti was quietly, quickly, and not so quietly deposed of. It's interesting that when you flip the page, the very first chapter of verse 2 says this, when King Xerxes' anger, and no doubt his hangover, had subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what he had decreed about her. I don't think it takes a literary genius to read between those lines and hear in those words great regret. Great regret. Um, King Xerxes, heavily influenced by the voices of his inner circle, has made a decision that he deeply regretted later. Now, later on in the story, Xerxes is again faced with a major issue uh, or, or an incident where he is advised by his inner council, this time by his prime minister, Haman. Haman approaches the king, tells him in Esther 3.8, a certain people scattered throughout the kingdom whose customs are different and who openly defy the king by refusing to obey his laws exist in the kingdom. And uh, Haman goes on to tell them that uh, it is not in the king's best interest to allow these people to continue to exist and that he, Haman, would be more than happy to take care of the problem. All he needs is a decree from the king to send out an edict that all of these people are to be exterminated and, and uh, cleansed from the Persian empire. All he needs is a king's signet ring in his decree. Now, again, the king agrees to do it without ever asking a question. He doesn't ask who these people are. He doesn't ask how many of them there are, if it's just a handful of people or if it's a a lot of people. He doesn't ask what laws they've broken. He doesn't ask how many times they've broken them. He doesn't ask anything that would have uncovered the fact that the whole plan was driven by the actions of one man who violated one law, but who more importantly happened to be a Jew, the very race that Haman despised, and against whom it had been, he had held a lifelong grudge. So because he didn't ask questions, because he didn't consider his actions, the king makes another decision, this time that not only leads to his own regret, but to the bewilderment of the, of the whole people. And he also unwittingly signs the death warrant of his beloved queen, Esther. Again, Xerxes has found himself listening to all the wrong voices. 
Now, as I said, this is a theme that runs throughout the book. It's not just Xerxes. We see it with, with Esther and, and Mordecai, Haman. Uh, with, with Esther, for example, we see a contrast. I mean, here Esther listens to the voices of Mordecai and Haggai in ways that are very beneficial. Haggai is uh, the man who is in charge of the uh, king's harem. He's the one who gave advice to the women before they went to see the king. Esther chose to do exactly what he said. Most of the women decided to do their own thing. She decided he knows best. I'll listen to what he says and do exactly what he says. She did so and won the king's favor. Later on, it's Mordecai's voice that speaks into her when she is wrestling with the gut-wrenching decision of whether or not she's going to put her own life at risk by approaching the king for the good of her people. It's a voice of Mordecai that strengthens her and encourages her to do the right thing. Haman, on the other hand, is another bad example. It's Haman's uh, listening to his wife and friends that lead him to the drastic decision to build a 90-foot gallows that he had hopes to hang Mordecai on the following day. Only it turns out to be his neck in the noose instead. So we see in the book of Esther uh, a number of different places where people are listening to other voices. And we see consequences that run the whole gamut. Uh, we, we see Xerxes who listened to others resulting in foolish and hasty decisions that led to great regret. Uh, we see Haman listening to others who stirred his hatred and evil and led to that great tragic decision. And then for Esther, listening to the voices of others led to an act of courage and bravery that we are still celebrating today thousands of years later. And well, let's just say it. The same is true for you and me. All of us have voices that we listen to. Some of them are wise, some of them are not so wise, and and they all affect us. And, And so the question this morning is, whose voice are we listening to? When uh, Chaplain Richardson stood here earlier today, I thought about this because I, I wondered how often has this man or the people that serve with him listened to the stories of young men or women who have made decisions that have had huge consequences in their lives because they listened to the wrong voices. Now, you may not have had the same consequences. You may not have had to pay for it with years in in jail, but all of us could look back at some point in our life and see places where we have been influenced by the wrong voices. And at the same time, I think all of us would say we have greatly benefited from the voices of others who have steered us and helped us to walk in the right direction. I know in my life, I absolutely would not be here today doing what I am doing this morning if I had not listened to the voices of others who helped confirm God's call on my life, who encouraged me and challenged me all along the way. Those voices have been uh, priceless for me, have been invaluable to me as I've lived my life. So who do we listen to and how can we know that we're listening to the right voices? Well, let's start at the most basic point, and that's this. It's what, are some, what are the voices that you can listen to? I want to be clear that we understand the different kinds of voices that we can listen to. First of all, there is the voice of God, the voice of God. I just want to say again, in very simplest terms, we have a God who wants to speak to us. 
We didn't have a God who simply wrote a book. We have a God who wants to speak to your soul. God's word says that the Bible is living and active. When we read it, God desires to speak directly to us. He speaks to us through his word. The word also tells us that he speaks to us through his spirit. That God's spirit will lead us into all understanding. That God's spirit will guide us into all right things. So God speaks to us through his word. His Holy Spirit can speak to us as well. But the first voice that we can listen to is the voice of God. And then there is the voice of his and our enemy, Satan. Uh, Scripture, again, is very clear that we have an enemy. He is a personal enemy. He has many, many demons, and, and he can speak to us. And we know that Satan will always oppose everything that God stands for. That's one of the voices that we can also hear. And then there's the voice of my own flesh. There's my inner voice, that voice that is rooted in my flesh. Now, that's a biblical term, and, and uh, I want to make sure you understand what I mean by that. When, we, when the Bible speaks of our flesh, it's talking about that part of us that wants to be God. There is a part of us that does not want to submit to God, but wants to do its own thing. There's a part of us that wants to live independently from God and anyone else so that we can be the God of our own lives. That voice is the voice of our flesh that will always insist on doing what it wants. Now, the Bible often talks about a thing called spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. And spiritual discernment is the ability to distinguish between those three voices. Is it the voice of the Lord? Is it my own voice? Or is it the voice of the enemy? That's called spiritual discernment. That's three of the voices, but I want to I touch on a few more. There's also voices. Now, those are voices that we only hear with our spiritual ears. We hear those voices with our spiritual ears. But obviously, there are also voices that we can hear with our physical ears. There are people who speak into our lives for better and sometimes for worse, right? Uh, we have people in our lives, people in our inner circles, people from our past, you know, people uh, that, that just sometimes people that we just bump into along the way that, that speak things into our lives that can continue to have influence over us on a daily basis. So there's the voices, there are the voices of others. And then there's one last voice that I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge. And that is the voice of the tapes that get stuck in my head that run over and over and over again. Everybody got, anybody got a tape that's stuck in your head? Now, it could have been rooted in any of those first four groups. It could, it could have been rooted in something God spoke, and it's a good tape that, that runs in your head that has positive influence on a daily basis. Or it could have been stuck in your head by, by a parent or a teacher or a friend or a bully or someone who just didn't like you or, or, or someone who did like you or love you even, but has spoken words over you that influence you on a daily basis. Sometimes we're conscious of these tapes. Sometimes we're not conscious of them. But we all have tapes that run in our head that can influence us, influence us on a daily basis. So what do we do with these voices? Uh, let me just take you to some very practical advice. Let's just get very practical here for a moment uh, as we move toward the close of the service. Let me just say, first of all, 
that we will always benefit. You and I will always benefit when we listen first to what God says on the matter. God is the the greatest, the truest, the most perfect voice that we can listen to. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We want to listen first to the word of God. I mean, I don't know how many times I've said this in recent weeks, but I know it's several. Several times I have said to us, probably more than at any short period of my ministry, how important it is for us to know this word. If we are living for such a time as now, it is absolutely essential that we as God people, God's people know his word. This is our plumb line. This is, uh, this is our, our, our measure against, against which we measure every other voice that we listen to. God has given us his word as a gift. We need to be students of his word. Not just read it in daily devotions, but be students of his word. Uh, next week, well, actually tonight, we kick off life school. If you hadn't signed up yet for a class in life school, a great opportunity. There are Bible study classes. There are classes that can help you learn how to study the Bible. Uh, sign up. Come tonight and begin committing yourself to knowing God's word. I just simply want to say that this word is the first word that we listen to, and it's the one against which we measure every other voice. We also can learn to discern the voice of the Lord in prayer. It grows out of his word. We know that a word that we hear in prayer will never violate this word. But we can learn to discern the voice of the Lord. In fact, there's also a class that starts tonight called Listening Prayer. And it's all about learning to listen to the voice of God in prayer. Uh, That's another possibility that you might take. But we need to begin by first listening to the voice of the Lord. Secondly, we need to learn to discern and to take authority over the voice of the enemy to discern and take authority over the voice of the enemy. I want to make this very clear. It's very simple. But let's just say in no uncertain terms, you have an enemy of your soul. You have one who is opposed to everything God is for. He is a liar. He is an accuser. And he is a deceiver. And he absolutely wants to draw you away from the truth of God's word. He wants to draw you away from listening to the voice of God. Uh, Turn with me, if you will, to to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. I think this will be a, a familiar passage to many of you, but let's just read the first three verses. It comes right on the heels of creation, creation of Adam and Eve, God's decision to give Adam and Eve everything that is in the garden. He gives extravagantly, gives generously. He just says there's one thing in the garden that is not meant for you. It wasn't made for you, so don't eat it. Don't go there. Immediately, the enemy comes on the scene for the very first time. Listen to what he says in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice how he 
twist God's own words. God just said, you can eat from any tree except for one. Satan twists it to make it sound like God is making all the trees off limits. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from that tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Surely you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I want you to see the progression here. Because it is a progression that, that reflects a very common pattern that the enemy will use to try to deceive you. Here's the first thing you'll do. He starts by simply raising a question. Simply raising the question, did God really say? He simply raises a question, which leads to confusion. Now Eve is beginning to question, well, did he say that? Why did he say that? What exactly did he say? In fact, she even, in repeating what God has said, repeats it not the way we have it in Scripture. God didn't say you can't touch it. He says don't eat it. Now she's beginning to question. She's beginning to doubt. And then from there, Satan will always begin to attack the character of God. He will always begin to say, God's character is not good. God is holding out on you. There is something that God is depriving you of that you should have. That's his pattern. He raises the question, hoping to bring confusion. And when the confusion comes in, he immediately leaps in with his own twisted version of the truth meant to deceive you and to destroy in your own heart the character of God. That's his way. I mean, can I just say as well, something I've noticed in my own life and over the years, Satan would love for you to believe one of two things. And quite frankly, he doesn't care which one it is. He would love for you to believe either that you are no good or that God is no good. He will always tend to go there. He will either accuse and attack you, and if he can't get to you, he will attack God's character himself. That is the way of our enemy. We need to develop the ability to discern the voice of the enemy. But we don't just need to discern the voice of the enemy. We need to recognize that we have authority over the enemy. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says this, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. When it says here that Christ has been seated in the heavenlies, and now it says that we are seated with him in the heavenlies, to be seated means he is sitting on a place of authority. He is in a position of authority. And the incredible thing about this verse is that Paul is telling us that because we are now united to Christ, not only is he in a position of authority, but in his name, we also are in a position of authority over the enemy. And so I want to tell you, it's a very simple thing, but as we begin to discern the voice of the enemy, we can begin to learn to simply say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I take authority over you. I renounce that lie, and I choose to believe in God's truth. It's just a basic pattern. It's just a basic pattern of life that I want to encourage you to on a daily basis. As you begin to discern the voice of the enemy, take authority. Say the words. If you have to say it out loud, say it. People are going to think you're strange, but I'd rather people think you're weird than you to be deceived, right? Learn to say the words. In the name of Jesus, I take authority over you. 
I renounce your lie and I choose to stand on God's truth. The next thing we can do, it's not so easy, but we can learn to subdue the voice of our flesh. Voice of our flesh. I was just thinking about this this week. Why is it that we crave things that are not good for us? You know, I mean, why don't we, why don't we crave spinach? I mean, really, I mean, why don't we crave spinach? Why do we crave sugar and fried food? I mean, why, why don't our bodies crave spinach? Uh, it's, just, it's, it's a reflection of the nature of our flesh. We crave things that are not good for us. And if we allow our flesh to have its way, I want to tell you very quickly, you're going to be a slave to your own flesh. Until we learn how to say no to our own flesh, we will become its slave. But as we learn to subdue our flesh, Paul talks about this in, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians, I believe. Uh, maybe it's 1 Corinthians 9, 26, there it is. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He says, I will subdue my flesh. I will keep my flesh in check. I will not let my flesh be the master of me. Your flesh is going to desire things that are not for God. They may not be evil. Here's the thing. Your flesh wants to be God. And so your flesh will try to convince you to go in ways that keep you in charge. And you failed to benefit from the incredible treasure of heaven that God wants to pour out in your life if you'll simply submit and allow him to be Lord. So we have to learn to subdue our flesh. And then when it comes to the voices of others, let me just say this. Careful, listen carefully to the voice of the wise or the counsel of the wise, but avoid the counsel of fools like the plague. Listen to the counsel of the wise, but avoid the counsel of fools like the plague. Uh, let, me, let me point you to an incredible book on this front, the book of Proverbs. If you hadn't read the book of Proverbs lately, go to the book of Proverbs. I just happened to do several little searches. And the word listen, as in who are you listening to, shows up 53 times in the, the book of Proverbs. One for every week of the year and one to boot. Uh, so it, it talks a whole lot about who you're listening to. Secondly, I looked up the word fool. And it comes in 73, 74 times in the book of Proverbs. And then I looked up the word wise, and that one comes in 97 times. One of the main themes of the book of Proverbs is drawing on the counsel of the wise and steering clear of the counsel of fools. And I will tell you, if there's nothing else I say today, that in itself will mean so much to us. But, but you know, how do you know? Well, let me, let me share, first of all, a couple of scriptures. From, here's some examples of what you'll find in Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool seems right to him. Isn't that true? Fools always think they're right. They always think they're right. But a wise man listens to advice. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Paul picks up a similar theme in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company will corrupt. The people that we hang around are going to have an influence on us. If they're people who are wise and godly, they're going to influence us for good. 
If they're people who are not wise or foolish or they're not for God, they're going to influence you in ways that can lead to foolish decisions. So we need to ask ourselves, who are the voices I'm listening to with these ears? Who are the people that I'm allowing into my inner circle? And maybe you're asking the question, but how do you really know? I mean, how do you know if they're wise or if they're foolish? Well, just look at their lives. I mean, look at the fruit of their lives. And let me, let me encourage you to do this, though. When you do it, look at the current state of their lives. Because we should always uh, we remember that there are people who are incredibly wise today because they made huge mistakes in the past. So just because somebody made a big mistake in the past doesn't mean they're not wise today. If they've learned from what they've done, then they could have great wisdom. On the other hand, there are people who are very successful, who have made good decisions in the past, but have strayed from that course. And now, I can tell you, they can tell you a whole lot of things that sound wise, but they're going to be shallow. They'll have no authority. They'll have no depth because their current life does not reflect wisdom. So simply look at the fruit of their lives, and it'll help you to determine whether this is someone who speaks and lives out of wisdom or out of foolishness. And then there's the last thing. I want to encourage you this morning to replace the old tapes with new ones that reflect the truth of God's word. Now, when I said that a minute ago, a lot of you nodded immediately with understanding. Many of us know already the tapes that run in our heads. I think about things that have been spoken over people. They've had so much impact. And someone has said to a kid or maybe even an adult, you're you're just a a screw-up and you're never going to amount to anything your whole life. Pam was telling me once about uh, a word that, I think it was Stacy Eldridge in the book, Captivating, said what she feels deep down, uh, these are the, this is the voice that she hears. You are too much and not enough all at the same time. You're not enough and you're too much all at the same time. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not rich enough. You're not strong enough. You're, you're not enough And at the same time, you're too controlling, you're too demanding, you're too nagging, you're too this, you're too that. Many of us live in that place of constant tension in our lives where we feel deep down, I'm not enough and I'm too much all at the same time. Many of us have these voices that run through our heads all the time. I want you to understand as you bring the truth of God's word into your heart, as you begin to discern the difference between the truth of God and the lies of your deceiver, begin to replace the old tapes with new ones. I want to do something this morning. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And I want to read something over you. And I just want you to receive it. I didn't put it on the overhead because I really don't want you to get distracted by anything. I want you to to listen, not only with your physical ears, but listen with your spiritual ears. And what I'm going to read you was written many years ago. It's called the Father's Love Letter. But the reason I wanted to read it is because it is just a full page of scriptures that are strung together one after the other that speak to you the truth of God's heart toward yourself. Everything I'm about to read comes right out of God's word. And I want you to listen to these words and let God speak them into your soul this morning. My child, 
You may not know me, but I know everything about you. I know when you sit down and when you rise up. I am familiar with all your ways. Even the very head, hairs on your head are numbered. For you were made in my image. In me you live and move and have your being. For you are my child. I knew you before you were ever conceived. I chose you when I planned creation. You are not a mistake. For all your days are written in my book. I determined the exact time of your birth and where you would live. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb and brought you forth on the day you were born. I have been misrepresented by those who don't know me. I am not distant and angry, but I am the complete expression of love. And it is my desire to lavish my love on you simply because you are my child and I am your father. I offer you more than your earthly father ever could, for I am the perfect father. Every good and perfect gift that you receive comes from my hand. I am your provider. I meet all your needs. My plan for your future has always been filled with hope because I love you with an everlasting love. My thoughts toward you are countless as the sand on the seashore, and I rejoice over you with singing. I will never stop doing good to you, for you are my treasured possession. I desire to establish you with all my heart and all my soul. And I want to show you great and marvelous things. If you will seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. Delight in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart. I am able to do far more than you can possibly imagine, for I am your greatest encourager. I am also the Father who comforts you in all your troubles. When you are brokenhearted, I am close to you. As a shepherd carries a lamb, I have carried you close to my heart. One day I will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and I will take away all the pain you have suffered on this earth. I am your Father, and I love you even as I love my Son, Jesus. For in Jesus, my love for you is revealed. He is the exact representation of my being. He came to demonstrate that I am for you, not against you. And to tell you that I am not counting your sins. Jesus died so that you and I could be reconciled. His death was the ultimate expression of my love for you. I gave up everything I loved that I might gain your love. If you receive the gift of my son, Jesus, you receive me. And nothing will ever separate you from my love again. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Come home and I'll throw the biggest party heaven has ever seen. I have always been father and will always be father. My question is, will you be my child? I am waiting for you. 
love your dad, almighty God. I want to invite you this morning to respond to God's word. Some of you may need to just sit right where you are and just keep praying over whatever the Lord is speaking to you right now. Some of you may want to come and kneel at these altars. If you want someone to pray with you, just lift your hand and they'll come. Others may want to come and and share in Holy Communion. We offer these elements every Sunday because this is our greatest act of worship. When we receive this bread that has been broken, just as his body was broken, and we dip it into this juice, which represents the blood that was shed on the cross for your sins and mine, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ has done it all. Come and receive his grace afresh this morning. Let his grace wash over you as you come. Here are some questions for you to continue reflecting on uh, as you come and as you wait. Let's go ahead and bring them all up at once. What voices have I been listening to and what are the consequences? When was the last time I truly listened to the voice of the Lord? And what is he saying to me today? Let me ask those who are serving to come, prepare the elements. Let me ask you to just sit for a moment while they prepare the elements. Would you just reflect on these questions? And in just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come and to respond.